You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. What's up? This is J-Rock, and I'm right here. I'm chilling on the Bedroom Beethoven's podcast. That's what it is. Let's go. Let's go. People of Earth, welcome to episode 165 of the podcast. My guest this week is... My name is Salami Rose-Jaluz. I am a producer, instrumentalist, singer, person. I recently did a remix for... Hiatus Coyote, that was really fun. And Free the Robot, I feel like I'm forgetting some people, but... <laughs> California musician planetary scientist and brain feeder signee salami rose joe lewis is in the house to talk about magical dreams university studies touring philosophy literature family and more after hearing free the robots gush about her in an earlier episode of the podcast i knew i had to put the call in but before we get to that i just want to remind everyone that if you like the podcast please tell a friend and i'm easy to find this episode this podcast it's available wherever it is you consume podcasts and I'd be mighty happy if you could give it a five-star rating and review it. Like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. And lastly, this is important, patreon.com slash bedroombeethovens, where you can give a buck or two and help spearhead this community of like-minded people. You get goodies, access to early episodes. It keeps the podcast ad-free, and you have my appreciation. But without further ado, the whimsical, mega-talented woman of earthly wonder, Salami Rose Joe Lewis. I, uh, I, I Googled half of your name. I left out like the Joe Lewis part. And there's this, I, I realized that there's this fascinating world of people who, well, I, I don't know. Have you seen like the salami rose hack on the internet where people create salami roses for like yeah. cutlery boards? <laughs> who would have thought? Bonkers. Yeah. Um, really, really makes me proud. <laughs> no, um, I honestly, so my name is, uh, before I was born, my parents told my sister she could name me, and um, she loved salami and roses. But I don't think she, I think she was three years old, so I don't think she was doing the whole salami rose charcuterie situation. But, but I feel like I get a couple messages with those <laughs> with those images now, occasionally, and it really makes me happy. If your sister would have uh, came up with something more, I guess, normal by societal standards, would your parents have been prepared to really make it your legal name? I think so, yeah. Um, they kept the rose part in, in the legal situation. <laughs> um, and they call me Salami. For all intensive purposes, it feels like my, my true name. So you, you have, a, you have a, a, a Czech mother and an American father. What, what kind of an upbringing does that result in as you grew up on the West Coast? Yeah, that's wow. Oh my gosh. Um, great question. In a lot of ways, I'm really grateful for having a little bit of a slightly 
different perspective. I was really close with like my Czech side of the family and um, they had a really interesting background in history that I felt like was ever present in my upbringing. Some of it was a little intense, um, <laughs> but uh, I feel like it definitely helped shape me. What was on a music tip, it was really cool to have my my dad and his experience growing up in America because he had a lot of, um, he loved, he's a big lover of music, so he had a lot of great records that we used to listen to and gave me a really good uh, music upbringing. <laughs> well, your, your grandmother was a scientist. Was your mother as well? Yeah, yeah. So there's kind of, when they emigrated here, they sort of were very intensive about everyone sort of um, becoming scientists as a sort of means of making a secure living. And so I think actually my mom may have wanted to be an artist, but I, I think she felt like there really wasn't an option. Um, and so she um, studied super hard and <laughs> became a scientist. Um, and there is kind of this feeling in my family that um, I think I'll always slightly disappoint them by being a musician and not a scientist. Let's say, you know, if we fast forward, when you quit your job and start music, it must be hard to release music without the 100% support of your parents fully realizing your dream. Like, they're probably still a bit shell-shocked by the decision of you to abandon the scientist lab for the recording studio. It, it's almost like your success and happiness needs to remain constant so you can win you can win over every Olsen day by day <laughs> yeah I, I will admit I I definitely keep a very positive tone when I discuss with them what I'm up to. I don't really let on any of the harder aspects of the music industry um, because I think I'm always trying to convince them that it's a, you know, a great career, which I firmly believe, but there's definitely, you know, some more difficult aspects, especially financially. It's not like it's not like you're a race car driver worrying your mom every time you get into a car like your grandmother did. <laughs> Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's hilarious. So when you pick a school that you want to go to, did you always have a fundamental human curiosity about the past, present, and future of Earth and other planets and then science and all that? Or was this just the expectations of your family and I'm going to follow in that? I will say a lot of it was the expectations of my family. However, I'd be lying if I said I didn't like really love science and find it really interesting and in particular like the earth sciences um and in particular the sea <laughs> um I think ocean chemistry and just like it's just so marvelous and awe-inspiring all of the just insane depths to this world um always blows my mind um but I think when it comes to science like the types of science I find myself interested in 
it actually reminds me a lot of music where it's like really kind of abstract stuff. Um, like I, I wasn't ever big on biology, but I loved organic chemistry and maybe more puzzle type sciences <laughs> where you're sort of doing a lot of very abstract, um, almost like magical stuff. Um, and I feel that way about music too. It's like I'm obsessed with, I think that's why I love production so much is like getting into abstract shapes and sounds and collaging it together to find this sort of um, intangible cohesion. Your debut album was more about existential questions about home and identity, but your your newer music, you said that artists almost have a responsibility to create positive imagery to influence the world in a positive way if if so then you're supposed to shy away from songs that lend itself to death isolation identity freedom and meaning i was sort of reflecting on all of the images we take in and my own responsibility as an artist and like what kind of images am i putting out in the world what am i trying to say and like i need to be more intentional about what I try to say and not sort of propagate carelessly negative things that I don't necessarily believe in. And then I did run into a problem where like I oftentimes use music as a form of therapy and like there's a lot of sadness and and things that I go through that I find I seek a lot of solace in writing music about. And I was actually really conflicted in releasing an album with sort of the darker side of being an artist and these more personal, like, existential crisis. Uh, song on the record that I most recently put out called, like, Fuck Eager to Please, and that song to me is like a, a song about um, some of the conditioning that women have where there's this you're sort of conditioned to be a people pleaser in some cultures um and um sort of live your life for caring for others and it's all tied into like nurturing and definitely the way I was raised that's like a big part of my bringing was sort of like I hate to admit it but like you know deferring to the males in the family and like trying to make sure that or like putting them first and um so that song was definitely like trying to rebel against that um conditioning and in that sense like that's like a heavier subject but I also believe in that and believe in trying to inspire that message in younger women your one of your favorite authors was Octavia E Butler and she I think felt that way she said that the research and writing of her books overwhelmed and depressed her. And maybe, you know, I, I almost feel like maybe she felt the same way you did with the science labs and maybe she didn't have the resources, luck, support, talent, or whatever to transition to something else that made her happy. It was almost like she was reluctantly successful in her field. Mm, interesting. Her books really inspired me to um, be as real and um, dark <laughs> as as I felt like I needed to be, especially parable of, of the talents that took. Um, 
I felt like she really went in um, and she didn't sugarcoat anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't read any of the books, but I, I read something where she actually predicted like the Donald Trump slogan and everything. Yeah, it's really terrifying. Oh my it's gosh. Really terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's outrageous. Touching on what you said, the University of, of California, the, I guess the studying was fun, the, the journey getting your degree is fun, the learning's fun, but the actual doing wasn't that fun. So that, that's actually a huge dice roll because you don't realize until after you maybe walk the stage and you get a job that you realize, oh, there's there's big business and corporate greed involved here too. There, there's, you know, These are very important issues that I'm dealing with. So if, if politicians and governments and policymakers and scientists don't get enough funding or interest drummed up, then nobody else is really going to care about my degree or what I'm working on, or there won't be enough support to actually follow through the result. And that can be frustrating too. It was, it was a little bit um, demoralizing um, because, you know, I think climate change is such an important issue and it felt really exciting to be working on climate change projects and then to find out that like most of the funding is coming from like a pharmaceutical company or <laughs> like it's just so hard to get funding that's like pure if that makes sense and there's so many like ulterior motives for things and I don't know like funding in academia is just really gnarly <laughs> and also I will say like one thing that kind of felt tricky is within the context of academia when you're working on these climate change projects it's like there's so much almost emphasis on climbing the academic ladder like more so than the actual work that you're doing and it felt like so much money and resources was going into like quantifying how fast climate change was happening when like specific <laughs> things like the thing I was working on was like nitrogen, um, the nitrogen cycle in the ocean. And which is very like important in a big picture way. But like, I guess the thing that I kept feeling um, when I was in there was like, I almost felt like they're more important than um, like these numbers and the politics of science was was a spiritual change like in the world needs to happen for us to like spiritually reshift how we approach reality and um and I think that made music seem more appealing because it definitely taps into the spirit a little more. You know, George Clinton said that Flying Lotus and Thundercat are the next generation of funk musicians. Can you tell me the first time that you heard George Clinton and the first time you heard Flying Lotus and how they similarly impacted your world? But, but the contrast in how they affected your life since you heard George Clinton at such a young age and you probably heard Flying Lotus, you know, later in your life. Oh, that's a cool question. George Clinton for me was middle school. 
and I remember I had a Walkman. <laughs> I remember I went for a walk and I immediately started dancing. There's literally nothing you can do. It's like a impenetrable force. <laughs> um, and that was awesome. And Flying Lotus, um, that was, I think I was like 19. I, um, <laughs> I hate to be this person, but I was on acid. Well, this whole journey started because when you're making music, before you signed to any type of label, you didn't expect anyone to hear your music outside of your closest friends. So you're creating without expectations. Now, if you're creating, are you able to duplicate that process now that you might be creating music for contractual obligations? You know, I get really freaked out. um, And I think I put a lot of pressure on myself. So it it definitely feels different. Um, like for example, the record that I'm working on now, like I, I have like three hours to four hours worth of music, but I, I've become such a perfectionist and like maybe just want it to be so good, (laughs) um, and take it so intensely that it just, I, I think it takes me a lot longer and I'm like, not just putting out like I think the first album I put out in 2016 like I never thought anyone would hear it so it's just like really playful really like demo-y and lo-fi and um and now I'm trying to be a lot more perfectionist with it (laughs) um but it is it is like terrifying and also really beautiful like I like the pressure and I like working really hard on things um but in some ways I do miss like just throwing tracks on SoundCloud and and not um worrying so much about them being perfect (laughs) well you you said that you wouldn't be releasing music at all if it wasn't for your, your friend who ran the Hot Record Society label. So when you transition from Hot Record Society to Brain Feeder, is that a hard conversation to have? My friend Jamie that runs it, he's such a, a great person and friend, and he was so supportive, and it's all love. Um, yeah, and we actually, I think we were roommates when I got that deal. And um, yeah, he was super supportive. It was, it was a very nice conversation. <laughs> So then when you finally open up for Flying Lotus, can you recall the first date that you opened up for him? Like, is there, is there a general awareness by the crowd on who you are and what you do? Or is 98% of the crowd there to see Flying Lotus? 
I think, yeah, 98% to see Flying Lotus. I was so scared. But is it is it more terrifying performing for a bunch of people that have paid money to see you? Or is it more terrifying when nobody knows who you are in the crowd? That's a really good question. I think it can go either way. For me, the thing that I get most anxious about is performing in front of someone that I've like looked up to my whole life. <laughs> um, so I think like opening up for Flying Lotus just felt like very monumental and very like very emotional to to get to open up for someone that inspired me so much. But I think when people are there to see you they're they know what you're about and they in general are very like loving and excited so that that's a little bit more fun. <laughs> but there is something really beautiful to get to play for people that have never heard you before, too. Um, but I think that my solo set can sometimes be really mellow. Um, and I was a little worried that on that tour opening for Philo, I was just, I didn't bring the hype or the party. <laughs> Because my music can sometimes be pretty mellow. Um, and Philo's such a good performer. I think he really knows how to, you know, make a make a party. So when you're when you're touring, like now, like with Home Shake, Still Woozy and all that, what, what is the, the modern equivalent to the dinosaur finger puppet? What is the security blanket object this time around? Or do you not need anything? <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. You did so much research. <laughs> it's, it's so sweet. Um, you know, oh, good question. I mean, I've been making some weird jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that always is my go-to whenever I'm nervous. It's just comedy, you know what I mean? And so I think I have this, this, um, this sound. That is the equivalent of a dinosaur finger puppet, which is like, I do that a lot. But in general, I've gotten better at um, trying to relax before performing. And and one of the methods is um, my friend put me onto this Wim Hof breathing exercise. I've been doing that before performing, and it's been really helpful um, to sort of get into a more calm state of mind it's funny because i i remember when the pandemic happened you said that you were kind of relieved in a sense about slowing down your schedule you know and now that things are kind of opening up it's you know why did you even want to go back on tour because it, it kind of seems like learning the clarinet and taking classes at berkeley and filming soundtracks you kind of made a fruitful pivot and it almost seems like you moved on from the hustle and bustle of being a touring musician as much as i'm an introvert and love to be at home making music. I definitely realized that performing and getting to have that energy exchange with the audience and connecting with people is maybe one of the most magical things. And I really missed it. And actually when I went on tour, it was I think the first tour back after the pandemic with the Toon Yards, like the first show, I just started 
crying with happiness because it was like a part of my soul that I really like I missed getting to perform and I think when I'm recording um the way I sing when I record is really quiet and um I do a lot of layers and it's like it's a very almost like scientific process the sort of producing side of things but playing live I really like sing I guess with my whole body and it feels so much more spiritual and like a release and yeah it's very cathartic um and also like spending so much time like I lived alone for a long time and and being like an introvert spending so much time recording music at home alone like sometimes I'd go a couple weeks without seeing anybody (laughs) and so getting to I realized like my whole social life is actually just going to shows and playing shows so it was a really important part of my like mental health to be out because I can easily become a hermit (laughs) <laughs> well, I know a few weeks ago you had to cancel some tour dates due to illness. And I, I never heard of an illness where, like, sure, I've heard about people losing their voice, but simultaneously you lost most of your hearing in one ear. It's it's almost like your uh, Think I Lost My Hearing song now takes on its literal <laughs> meaning. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow, your research is blowing my mind. <laughs> Think I lost my hearing. Oh yeah, that was that was fucking crazy. Yeah, especially play. I played a couple shows with complete loss of hearing on one side, and it was so bizarre. Um, it really makes you appreciate having your full range of hearing um but yeah the i think it was like a sinus infection and it wasn't helping that i was just continuing to tour and we were doing like my friend and i were doing the the driving as well and so just be a couple really long days you know wake up at seven and get home at like 3 a.m which won't help with um with getting over a sickness <laughs> so I kind of ran myself into the ground and then I got COVID too which was also knocked me out for a little bit I'm glad yeah. you're feeling better though yeah it's good to be back. <laughs> I think the last thing that I wanted to ask to kind of complete this whole experience of getting to know you is you once said you had a really powerful dream to put everything into perspective. Are you able to go into length about said dream? I had a very interesting, like, awake dream one time <laughs> when I was young. Ooh, like a lucid dream. Sort of, yeah. And it was brought on by music. It's, I'm about to get a little bit intense. So my grandmother was in the Holocaust, and she never really talked about it much. I was really close with her. There was this song that was playing. There was like this school play that I went to. There was this song that was playing. I didn't know what the song was um, at the time. But it was this, I guess, like Hebrew death chant that 
people used to sing like on their way to the gas chambers and stuff like that. Somehow listening to this song, I like went into this sort of trance and I was, I was pretty young and I started having all these like floods of memories about things that I don't remember like happening. Like one was um, being sort of covered in newspapers and um, I, I found out afterwards that this was like a memory that my grandma had and I think it was like it's such a powerful I just I think it's so beautiful that music can can so deeply like tap into your like every fiber and somehow bring out these almost like generational memories <laughs> um and yeah, I, I think that really solidified my, like, deep respect and admiration and awe for music. Um, so that was one dream. <laughs> and then the other dream I had, um, which kind of ties into this next record I'm dropping, but I'll leave it as, like, an Easter egg. But um, it was animated which was so magical um and i basically went through like every color um in a different form of animation and each like color had like a like a deep message about um like my relationship to the world and others around me um and um i think that it, i ended up the sort of green dimension and there are all these trees and it was the only dimension that was like not animated and it was so peaceful and like everything felt like it was in its right place and um it definitely inspired this next record that I'm working on currently mixing <laughs> yeah I, I read that you like you were in a car accident a couple years ago and you're one of your music while you were out of commission, it was a song that was in a commercial and it contributed you to doing music full time. If I take that and I couple it with these magical and powerful dreams and the fact that you went through this, you know, whole journey to get this very prestigious degree in a prestigious field and you stop doing that to focus on this. It's almost like if I take all these puzzle pieces, you are doing what you were meant to do on this planet without doubt you know (laughs) that's really nice i hope so (laughs) that's really nice well we we covered a lot of ground i would love to give you the floor to talk about anything we missed Uh, you touched on future projects but if there's any tour dates or anything you would want people to know go for it nice yeah i mean um yeah i have this record in the works it's coming out next year i'm almost done just in the mixing phases and think it's my opus <laughs> i'm really excited about it there's a lot of collabs on it i'm really excited about and then i have some shows coming up in the bay area and in los angeles um and then i think i'm gonna go into music recording hibernation until the album drops and then hopefully do a bunch of tours then um yeah <laughs> Well, 
I think you're just wonderful and I appreciate your time and thank you for swinging by. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure and hopefully I wasn't too uh, loopy. I, it's been so long since I've done an interview. I'm sometimes not so good with words. <laughs> did, I keep, did I keep my promise? It is a wonderful you just... interview. You did so much research. <laughs> 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 it was, was mind-blowing. Thank you. <laughs>